Greetings, my fellow lovers of all things creepy, crawling, and putrefying. On today's episode of the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast, we'll be taking a trip back in time and exploring the early origins of forensic entomology and see just how we got where we are today. Beginning in 13th century China and moving on into late Renaissance era Italy, the roots of forensic entomology may be surprising to some, gruesome to others, but to me, it's all part of the fascinating world of bugs, blood, and bones. Welcome back to the Bugcast, where today we begin by slingshotting ourselves around the sun and traveling back in time to 1235 CE. That's common era. It's summer in 13th century China. Sun's beating down on people and their rice patties. Insects are in the air and underfoot and murder is on mind. A text written by Song Si titled, The Collected Cases of Injustice Rectified, very commonly known as the washing away of wrongs, is one of the most important historical forensic science texts around. It was written as a means of conveying as much experiential and as much as possible analytical data to better allow state death investigators to evaluate and make determinations in death investigations. This text taught how to inspect corpses for evidence, including preservation of evidence that was collected, how mode and manner of death can impact the appearance and progress of decomposition, how to distinguish suicide from murder or just normal natural cause of death, and the importance of impartiality was very strongly conveyed in this text and something that definitely continues and is very important in today's modern death investigations. All in all, it was a rather wholly remarkable book. It did not have Don't Panic written in large friendly letters in the cover, but it was very important for the death investigators of the day and continuing on to this day to some extent. It also included the first-hand accounts of in-the-field investigations, which brings us back to that rice paddy. A man has been murdered, and a sickle, a very common farming implement in the day, is believed to have been the weapon. But who did it? No evidence linking any one person to this crime is found. There's no guilty party that's come forward regretting their actions. So an investigator goes into this village, and he orders all of the members of this village to come forward and place their sickles in front of them on the ground. They all assemble and do as they are instructed. At first, nothing happens. But soon, the air begins to buzz with activity. That's right. Our friends, the little insects, know what's up. Flies, most likely califorids, blowflies, bottleflies, you may have heard of them. They move towards this sickle. Soon, a number have been attracted to the blade and they aggregate, attracted by the particles of blood and flesh left on the tool. The man who owns the sickle fears this sign and confesses to this crime. One would hope that this text, this invaluable information, would spread throughout the world. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Where Songxi had written about the attraction of insects to corpses, where they would mate, lay eggs, and then go about their maggoty business, history had different plans for Europe. Due to a number of factors, ideas about the human body, science, and decomposition were on a different trajectory in Europe. In Renaissance-era Italy, the common belief wasn't that flies were attracted to a decomposing corpse. 
where they would lay eggs, which then hatch and become maggots. This concept, it seems obvious to us now. I mean, whenever I'm out for a walk and catch a whiff of some rotting roadkill, I go and check it out, and sure enough, as I expect, there are some eggs laid by some flies, and then the eggs hatch into the maggots, and then the maggots go on doing their business and become flies again. That's just the circle of life, just like Disney taught us. But that wasn't the prevailing idea in 17th century Europe. That idea would soon be challenged. A physician and natural philosopher by the name of Francisco Reddy, and just as a heads up, I will probably pronounce all of these names throughout this entire podcast incorrectly. Francisco Reddy was exploring medicine and the natural world in new and fascinating ways. His study of snakes was dispelling myths regarding the source and qualities of snake venom and that the head of a viper it's not a good antidote for a venom-infused bite by a snake, which was a uh, common belief at the time. He also demonstrated that by applying a tight band or ligature around a wound, you could prevent the venom that was injected after a snake would bite you from moving into the heart. Thus begins experimental toxicology. Reddy conducted many many studies over his years, earning him titles such as the founder of experimental biology and the father of modern parasitology. Now, as I said earlier, the idea that a fly was attracted to a corpse wasn't accepted during Reddy's day. Instead, the prevailing idea was something called spontaneous generation, also called Aristotelian abiogenesis. The principle was pretty simple. When you die, you just kind of turn into maggots. You see your friend Fred, he has a heart attack, he keels over and he dies one day, and then poof, maggots. Reddy had an inkling that this was a load of bollocks, and he set out to determine experimentally, with evidence, just how those maggots got into Fred's skull. He didn't believe, they just kind of whoosh, maggots. He conducted a series of studies, a series of experiments, each building upon each other until a solid, well-tested assumption could be drawn. In his first series of experiments, he had six jars divided into two groups. The first group was covered with very fine, thick gauze. The second was left open. In each of these jars was an unknown object. The second jar in each group had some dead fish, and the third jar in each group had a raw a chunk of raw veal. He left these out for several days, and after a period of days, he found that maggots appeared and were crawling around in the open jars with the meat and the fish, but not in the gauze-covered jars. This led him to a second experiment series where he had meat placed in three different jars. One was uncovered, one was covered but with that gauze, and the other, other was covered and sealed with cork. Again, after several days, the one that was uncovered was full of maggots. The one that had the gauze had some maggots on the gauze itself, but they eventually died because they never got down into the meat in the jar. The other one sealed with that cork, no maggots at all. He continued a series of experiments by capturing and then rearing these flies and maggots, confirming not just that these flies were laying eggs in or on this dead meat in the jars, but that the flies were laying these eggs, the eggs would then hatch into maggots, which would then become adult flies, which could then mate 
and lay more eggs and rinse repeat. Nearly a hundred years later, the Swedish physician, taxonomist, and all-around classy guy Carl von Linné, perhaps known to some of you as Linnaeus, remarked that three flies could devour a horse as fast as a lion, referring, of course, to the for him, well-established observation that mated flies would lay eggs on a corpse, which then hatch into maggots, which feed and grow and eventually become adult flies themselves. All of this, minimal as it is, brings us to the 1800s and the first uses and study of insects and other arthropods in death investigations in Europe. Multiple mass grave exhumations, child death, possible poisoning by sulfuric acid all come into play when next we take a trip down Maggoty Lane. But before we take that dark little trip back in time some more, let's, uh, let's kick it on back and look at something lighter instead. So as the music of the Underscore Orchestra takes us out, I'd like to invite you all to come back in two weeks when we can have a very special episode where I sit you all down and where we can sit back, relax, and finally have that talk about the birds and the bees. And I can tell you just what you need to do to keep your mantis lover from tearing off your skull and devouring it before the night is over. And until then, have a great day. And remember, kids, keep calm and carry on.